welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Since 1995, when the FDA approved OxyContin, igniting an opioid crisis, many bad actors have emerged willing to do almost anything to make a buck off the insatiable demand for opioids in our country but none are less conspicuous and more notorious than Paul LaRue. Born in Zimbabwe, LaRue was a loner who became an expert coder and developed and released an open-source encryption program he named Encryption for the Masses, or E4M. He then, in 2004, launched what would become the largest network of online internet pharmacies in the world, supplying millions of painkillers to Americans. While he stayed under the radar for the most part, in 2014, he caught the attention of award-winning investigative journalist Evan Ratliff, who began his research into the little-known underworld of Paul LaRue. Over the next four years, he wrote The Mastermind, Drugs, Empire, Murder, and Betrayal. Joining me today to share LaRue's improbable story is Evan Ratliff. As we begin, Evan talks about how Paul LaRue and his empire first came to his attention. So he was under the radar uh, for, for a lot of his sort of career um, in terms of his drug distribution career and his criminal career. And then even after he was arrested, he was actually uh, still an unknown quality, the quantity for many years uh, because he was held in secret. So I kind of came to him in a funny way, which was that his... Uh, one of his henchmen was arrested in 2013. His name is Joseph Hunter. Uh, people called him Rambo. He's an ex-U.S. military uh, trained sniper, former Green Beret. And he was arrested in a sting operation where he had been paid to assassinate a DEA agent uh, with a team of assassins that he, Joseph Hunter, had assembled uh, for a price of, I think, $800,000. And that story was a kind of one day big international story. They had a press conference about Joseph Hunter and they had gotten this guy. And I saw that as a lot of people saw that. And I was intrigued by that story. So I started looking into that story originally. And then uh, it became clear once I got into it that it, Joseph Hunter was not just a guy who sort of roamed the world looking for people to kill for money, that he actually had a boss and he had worked for a boss. And that boss turned out to be Paul LaRue. But at the time, no one knew that. But then there was this remaining huge question, which was, well, who who was Paul LaRue? Where did this man come from? He was kind of a ghost. You couldn't find photos of him online. It was very difficult to determine what his background was. Uh, and so that's when I started digging into, you know, who's the man behind all of this. Next, Evan shares how LaRue built his network of online pharmacies. Yeah, so he had this this very clever scheme. So 
you know, it sort of started with his own technical ability. So, you know, he was a programmer. He was a, a genius programmer. People who had worked with him said, you know, he could pick up languages, programming languages like they were hobbies. And so he, he was able to build this network uh, from a technical infrastructure perspective entirely himself. And the way it worked was he would, he sort of built uh, what you might call a, a front end architecture in technical terms, which is, you know, he, he created a bunch of websites or he worked with other people to let them create a bunch of websites that sold uh, prescription drugs over the internet. So they look like sites that you would find anywhere you show up. Uh, you know, these things are everywhere. They are, they have been since almost the dawn of the internet and you can, you can sign up and you can pick a drug and you can buy it. Now this includes everything from real ones where you might buy them from a Canadian pharmacy or some such, um, to LaRue's and the way LaRue's worked was he recruited American pharmacists and American doctors into this network. And usually they were sort of small timey, small town pharmacists and doctors who he would contact or he would post in forums and they would reply to forums, you know, work at home, earn some extra money if you're a doctor. And once they were in the network, what they did was a customer would go to one of LaRue's websites and say, order a drug. One of his most common drugs was uh, Ultram, which is tramadol. It's a synthetic opioid. So they would fill out a little survey, the, the customer, you know, the, the patient uh, in quotes, and they would say, you know, I have back pain or I have leg pain. Um, I need this tramadol. And they would order a certain amount. Then that order would be transmitted to a doctor. The doctor would, you know, supposedly look at this survey, the survey, the, the questionnaire that the patient had filled out, and then approve it, write a prescription for tramadol, then that prescription would be transmitted to the pharmacy, which could be anywhere else in the United States. And the pharmacy would then fill the prescription because they're looking at a legitimate, what they believe to be a legitimate prescription. They fill the prescription, they put it in a FedEx envelope, and they send it via FedEx on an account that is controlled by Paul LaRue or Paul LaRue's organization, which was generally called RX Limited. So RX Limited is this umbrella under which you have doctors and pharmacists who don't actually even know who they're working for approving thousands and thousands of prescriptions, you know, at first a month and then a week and then a day. I asked Kevin how they duped doctors and pharmacists into thinking RX Limited was legitimate. Well, they had they had recruiters. So they had people who dealt specifically with the doctors. And so they were there, you know, to answer the doctor's questions or the pharmacist's questions uh, about, you know, illegality, about, uh, you know, how the system worked. Um, they didn't really ever tell anyone who was behind it. They always just knew it was a company called RX Limited. A lot of them thought it was based in Israel because a lot, a lot of the, the call centers uh, were based in Israel. So some people thought it was an Israeli company. So a doctor or pharmacist might uh, have questions, but they were told, you know, these are legitimate patients you know, there, I think there's a probably a range within all of the doctors that were recruited into the network of people who sort of knew that it wasn't legitimate and did it anyway, all the way to people who, you know, mostly thought, well, this is uh, this is, you know, the future of medicine. This is uh, this is how medicine is, is going to work online is that people, you know, are going to talk to doctors remotely and get their prescriptions filled and they don't have to come all the way to an office to get a new tramadol prescription when they have, you know, some sort of 
chronic pain problem. So I think as with the opioid epidemic in general, you have probably a whole range of like completely crooked doctors to doctors who were just over prescribing. And I think, you know, Timpati, uh, you know, says that what he thought was, you know, this is di- digital virtual medicine. This is this is the future of this stuff. And and I'm getting in on it. And he would say to them, look, you should do consults like you. This should have video consults in it so that I'm actually I am dealing with the patients. At the same time, he was also approving, you know, hundreds, sometimes hundreds of prescriptions in a day. And the chances that he was able to actually evaluate all of those questionnaires are maybe pretty small. So, you, you know, in some sense, he's he's not exactly uh, paying attention to what the patients really need. So, you know, in hindsight, people would say, well, of course, these doctors knew. But I think there's there is a range of what they knew. And then the last thing I'll note on that question is that in some cases, like with one pharmacist in Wisconsin, they said, hey, if you think this is illegal, they, Rx Limited, the recruiters said, hey, call this DE agent, this retired DE agent down in Florida. Um, and, you know, he'll give you an assessment and gave him a number. And they called some guy, God knows who it was. It was not a DE agent, uh, but he thought it was. And that person said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's all legal. You know, these are not controlled substances at the time. The main painkillers that LaRue was dealing in were not controlled substances. So he would say, this is not actually illegal. These are legitimate prescriptions. At its peak, LaRue had an extensive network of pharmacies. He had um, overall, I think he had over 140 pharmacies. Um, It wasn't clear if they were all operating simultaneously, all sort of 140, 150, uh, because someone would go offline and then come back online you know, occasionally they would get raided by local authorities or they would get, you know, inspected uh, by state regulators or even the DEA and they would kind of go off the network and then they would come back on and they were always recruiting new ones. And so, you know, one of the problems with assessing sort of numbers in terms of the size of the network uh, is that it, it was operating in the shadows. So they never had to file anything saying this is the number of people involved. This is how many pills we've sent out. So all the numbers are kind of based on estimates of the DEA uh, from, you know, investigating the case. Ultimately, all of that uh, was, as any distribution of any pharmaceutical would be, it's regulated uh, under state and federal law. So, but the issue was that, you know, for any individual pharmacy, they might raid a pharmacy. I mean, this is kind of how the, the DEA started investigating it. They would they would raid an individual pharmacy because they would figure out, wow, this pharmacy in Chicago is doing an incredible volume. It just doesn't make sense that this this little pharmacy could be sending out this many prescriptions. So, you know, this is not right. So then they would go take that pharmacy down. But what they didn't realize for a long time in sort of the mid 2000s was that that pharmacy was just part of the same network that this other dozens of pharmacies were a part of. So you could take one offline and then another one would just replace it. Uh, they would just go recruit someone else. They would have other in their network. So they didn't have any comprehensive window into everything that was getting sent out. So they started their operation somewhere in the neighborhood of 2004. Mm-hmm. And as they built this up to hundreds of uh, online pharmacies, some start to started to take note that it was illegitimate. In fact, at one point, I guess LegitScript, and that is the online uh, pharmacy legitimacy validation website, 
had somewhere in the neighborhood of half of the illegitimate websites in their database listed as LaRue's. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they were, they were as, as many as half of the rogue online pharmacies in the world at one point were actually RX limited. They were actually LaRue's. And one of the reasons that was the case was that LaRue was able to basically mint his own domain name. So one of the, one of the issues with a, a kind of rogue online pharmacy is, you know, you come up with like rxpillsforsale.com. And then if you are selling something illegitimate or, or believed to be, there are different places in the chain where your website could get taken down by an internet service provider or your domain could get taken offline. But because Paul LaRue owned his own domain creator in the Philippines, he could just generate hundreds of those websites. So he, he could just generate random strings of RX12345 and put a, a new website on it and just start again. So he had the, the capability to kind of keep it running, even as pieces of it would be taken down, they would just be replaced by many, many more all the time. We discuss what led the DEA to investigate LaRue's operation. So that started uh, mostly because there were two investigators in the Minneapolis office of the DEA. They were they were diversion investigators um, who were looking into you know uh, pharmaceuticals that are diverted from the you know the the traditional market into gray and black markets. So that that's their that's their purview. They're not actually DEA agents. They're DEA investigators, um, and they were some of these. Uh, some of these authorities who had been taking down individual pharmacies in the way I described before. So they took down this one in, in Chicago called Alt-Geld, and they looked at the FedEx volume of pills that were going out of that place and just said, this can't be possible. And they got a spreadsheet. They subpoenaed FedEx, and they got a spreadsheet, essentially, of everything that had been sent on this particular account that this pharmacy was using. And then they noticed that it wasn't just this one pharmacy that was using this FedEx account number. There were pharmacies all over the United States who were using the same FedEx account number and in enormous volumes. And so that was what kind of uh, triggered them to start looking into it. Their names, it's, it's uh, Kimberly Brill and Stephen Holdren. And they, the two of them, almost alone, uh, were investigating this for many years. They had another, uh, an actual DEA agent named Kent Bailey, who was sort of a supervisor who was helping them uh, at first uh, out of the, the DEA Special Operations Headquarters and then back in Minneapolis. And so they started the very meticulous process of figuring out, okay, who's behind the FedEx account? What phone number is attached to the FedEx account? Who is hosting the servers that all of these websites are on? They started doing controlled buys where they would you know, set up their own fake credit cards and names, and they would buy drugs from the different websites and see where they came from, see who prescribed the drugs. So they're basically building out this web. And over time, the name Paul LaRue cropped up in different places. There were places where he had not been uh, as meticulous about hiding his identity as he was later in his business. And they were able to sort of latch on to Paul LaRue as the person behind this. And then dig into who he was and where he was. They discovered that he was based in the Philippines. And then it became a huge international investigation to try to track where all the money was going and what else he was up to. And ultimately, you know, from the time they found out to him, found out about him till he was arrested was six years, I think, of investigation. 
It was a really, really long in-depth investigation, which again was mostly conducted by two uh, investigators out of the Minneapolis office. Evan explains why it took six years for the DEA to make their case. A couple of reasons it took so long. That The last one you cite is one of them, which is just, it's just sort of a resource disparity. Paul LaRue was making, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, you know, Brill and Holdren were working out of their cubicles in Minneapolis with older computers, you know, take, taking notes on paper and keeping them in a file cabinet. And you know, they were, they're very, very smart and they're actually very, very technically savvy, but they, they had to teach themselves a lot of what they were learning, you know, how to, to trace these domains back, how to get through the layers of obfuscation that LaRue had created around the network. So, you know, part of it was a resource disparity. Part of it was that, you know, frankly, no one at the DEA uh, would give them the time of day in terms of the importance of the operation and, and additional resources and additional you know, investigators and agents to work on it. You know, they eventually got, you know, an analyst to work on it. They got some technical assistance. They, they, they did get help once they got LaRue onto what's called the CPOT list, which is the, it's sort of the most wanted list of targets of the DEA. So they eventually did get more assistance, but for many of the years, they were trying to fight against something that was overseas that was uh, very, very cleverly created and they just didn't have the resources to do it. And the other reason that it was difficult was that almost none of it was taking place. I mean, the distribution of the drugs was taking place in the United States, but the operations were all based elsewhere. So they could have taken down the doctors and pharmacists at any time. I mean, that was what they did all the time. They took down doctors and pharmacists. But what they were trying to do was get past that and try to get to the top of the top of the network. and. You know, that meant things like tracing the money and all the money went through Hong Kong. And to even get information about how much money is there, you have to file what's called an MLAT, which is, you know, a mutual legal assistance treaty request, which goes from our government to the Hong Kong government. And then, you know, that maybe they provide information, then it comes back the other way. It's just a very time consuming process. And they had to go through all of those steps to even figure out what was going on. And then the last bit is, if you want to catch Paul LaRue, you have to be able to prove that Paul LaRue is the person behind it. Not just we saw his name on a thing. You have to be able to prove that he's the person directing it. You have to have emails, phone calls, wiretaps. And that is very, very difficult. Paul LaRue built his own encrypted email servers, for instance, which could not be tapped. So that's one option that's out the window. You know, they were trying to get phone taps on him. So they were doing in the Philippines. Like these things are very, very, very difficult to do. So that's part of the reason why it took so long. Next, we talk about the DEA's big break in the case. I think their biggest break was that, well, there were two breaks. The first one was that in late 2011, early 2012, he became concerned about his position in the Philippines, Paul LaRue. So he had existed in the Philippines and run his business from there for, what, 12 years almost. At, uh, 12 years, eight years, I do my math here, eight years, I guess. And he had bribed people up and down the authorities and the government. Uh, he was protected. He had information coming to him about who was looking into him. And he started to hear more about the U.S. looking into him through uh, moles that he had inside the U.S. Embassy and in other places. And so he became concerned that the Philippines was not necessarily a safe place to operate from. So he, he decided to move his operations to Brazil. 
and he when he moved to brazil they they were able to get him on wiretaps i mean the brazilian authorities we just had a much better relationship the dea had a much better relationship with the authorities there they set up a special team that was responsible for monitoring him so then they had him on the phone they had him talking on the phone about illegal acts uh they could track him they could really keep track of him there so that was one break and then the second break was that when larue got big enough in terms of his other illegal activities which we haven't talked about but he got into you know regular large-scale drug trafficking cocaine methamphetamine all over the world arms dealing uh and then there was a lot of violence associated with his operation murders once he became big enough he caught the attention of this other side of the DEA called the 960 group, which uh, had known about LaRue for a while, but had basically refused to pay much attention to him uh, because they thought he was a small-time internet crook. And once they saw how big he was and how big that takedown would be, they got involved in helping to catch him and ultimately setting up the sting operation that did catch him. So they have much more resources relative to the investigators that I was talking about before in, in, in Minnesota. And so they were able to sort of set up a very elaborate sting operation that would ultimately lure him into their capture. So the other break was just sort of like getting the attention of their uh, colleagues at the DEA that this was a guy worth catching. The case against LaRue also spawned another case, this one against FedEx. LaRue's operation was part of that uh, originally. And then... It's sort of a complicated story, but uh, eventually, as I understand it, um, LaRue's RX Limited was not included in the actual indictment of FedEx. I mean, basically, FedEx was indicted for allowing these pharmacies to just ship these drugs, for allowing something that was clearly illegal if you looked at the numbers uh, to continue. And they were charged, and then ultimately, the charges were essentially withdrawn. The case kind of collapsed. And uh, there's a longer story behind the case collapsing. But, you know, one of the reasons was that FedEx argued, you know, the DA never told us to stop this stuff. And I had some indications from sources that, you know, that that was the case, that the DA was actually saying, well, don't shut this down because we're tracking it. We're, we're trying to get to the top of the, of the, of the network. So if you shut it down, then we won't be able to get to the top of the network. By 2012, FedEx did, did start shutting it down, and that's actually one of the things that uh, caused the root of panic, I think, was that FedEx was shutting things down. I think FedEx's argument was, uh, and again, like I haven't looked at any of the documents on this in a long time, and it's not really a big part of the book, so I, have, I haven't actually like deeply reported the FedEx uh, case aspect of the book. I only know it from the RX Limited side. But as I understand it, one of FedEx's arguments was, no one was telling us that we should stop doing this. So how are we to know that this was illegal? The DEA is supposed to be the ones that come tell us if it's illegal. So, you know, they had an opportunity to tell us and no one told us. So we thought it was fine. And what I found was that there was some indication also that I don't know if the D I honestly don't know if the DEA explicitly said uh, to FedEx, don't, don't take these things down, but they certainly didn't want them to to shut it down at a certain point, because if they shut it down, they would, the, the, the network itself might go away and they would lose their path to 
getting to the top of the network and then he would just set up in some other way. So uh, they at least had the desire to let it keep going. And then uh, I do know that uh, RX Limited was sort of removed from that case or was not included in that case in part because Paul LaRue was such a secret asset that they didn't want anything about Paul LaRue coming out in that case. So they prosecuted the case without including one of the biggest online pharmacies, rogue online pharmacies in the case. And my assumption is that that, make that, that made that that much more difficult. As Operation Checkmate closes in on LaRue, Evan shares what happens next. So they arrest him. They arrested him in uh, in Liberia. That's where they they lured him into their sting operation. And then he basically decided to cooperate from the moment they, not the moment they had him, but on the plane to the United States. Put him on a plane back to, to New York. Uh, on the plane, he says, I want to cooperate with you. I'll tell you everything I need, uh, everything you know, you want to know. I'll hand you other people. Uh, and they essentially uh, go for this deal. So he gets a deal in which he's going to cooperate with the government. He's going to plead guilty to uh, certain charges, which do not include some of the more severe charges that he could have faced. Um, and he's going to help them catch people. Now, the real allure of Paul LaRue as a cooperator was that he had done business with both Iran and North Korea. So I think that was what uh, sort of, you know, put a sparkle in their eye in terms of LaRue as a cooperator was that he might be able to get them into those places. Uh, it turned out, as far as uh, my sources have indicated, that that never really happened. They never really got anywhere on his North Korea and Iran connections. He did give them people who worked for him. So the likes of Joseph Hunter, his his henchman, he, his enforcer, uh, he was arrested along with you know the the assassination team that he had assembled in order to to execute a DEA agent. That was all a sting operation by the DEA. Um, he also gave them some underlings who were dealing methamphetamine that came from North Korea. Um, so he got them. You know, ten. 10 different people who had worked for LaRue ended up uh, arrested. And then some of the RX limited people he also helped get as well. Those people were later acquitted. Uh, but basically his cooperation amounted to, for the most part, catching people who had been employees of Paul LaRue who were still out there uh, that the DEA wanted, including uh, murderers. Uh, there were, you know, three guys were convicted of, of murder and sent to prison for life. So, um, you know, very, very bad characters doing very, very bad things. But they were people who had done those things at the behest of Paul LaRue. With North Korea, he was buying methamphetamine out of North Korea. Um, so he had a contact uh, through Hong Kong that was helping him get ultra, ultra pure methamphetamine that was manufactured in North Korea um, by the ton. And so that was his real relationship there. He also he tried to buy a submarine from North Korea. He was trying to do some arms-related uh, dealings with North Korea, but I'm not sure any of that worked out. And then in Iran, he was actually selling them arms, uh, initially an uh, explosives formula that he had concocted, uh, and then he was working on essentially missile guidance technology that he was trying to sell to the government of Iran, and he did have contacts there, and there, there was interest there. Uh, that transaction never, uh, never actually took place, uh, partly because he was arrested, but he had a whole team of 
engineers working in the Philippines on this missile guidance software that he was trying to sell them. Let's pivot here for a second, Evan. I'm going to ask you to speculate just for a second. He was making hundreds of millions of dollars a year, right? With his online pharmaceutical operations. Mm -hmm. About right? Yeah. So tremendously wealthy. What in the world would possess him to get into these other things, illicit drugs and arms in particular? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, it's a big question of the book for sure. I, I think, you know, I think the, the like most obvious reason out there to sort of grab at is greed. Um, but it's a particular kind of greed. It's not just sort of like he wanted more money. I mean, obviously he, he could have had more money than he could ever spend. He already had that much money. He had, you know, I spoke to one of his family members who would talk to him all the time and say, Hey, why don't you just quit? Like, why don't you just retire? You're done. You, you could just live out your life. And all of these, you know, people who want to kill you and all of these deals that you're involved in, you could just let it all go. Um, so certainly it wasn't just about money. But I think there was a bit of the sort of startup founder in him, which by which I mean the person who, like any of the big tech companies today, you could say, oh, any of those people, Facebook, Amazon, Google, they could have sold, their founders could have sold at much, much earlier points and had more money than they could ever spend in their lives. Why did they want to make it bigger and bigger and bigger? Why are they acquiring other companies? Why are they trying to dominate the world? And, you know, the answer is because they can, because what else would they do with themselves? Because they're driven the same, the same motivations that drove them to build the organization in the first place are driving them to make it the best, uh, to be remembered, you know, and Paul DeRue had all a bit of that, you know, he, he didn't want to just, uh, have a certain amount of money. He wanted to be the biggest and once he was sort of in gray to illegal areas to begin with, then the way to really multiply his empire wasn't to take the money and invest it in the stock market. It was to take the money invested in cocaine distribution, which has an extraordinary return compared to your normal uh, legal investments. Uh, arms dealing, you know, all of these things were about sort of assembling an empire as much as they were strictly speaking about making money, although clearly he cared about making a huge amount of money. So I think there was a certain sort of ambition there. And he would say things to people like, you know, I want to be king of my own uh, domain and I, I want to be on CNN if they ever catch me. You know, he wanted to be sort of the biggest that there ever was. And, you know, that's ego and megalomania and greed and power. And it's all of those things you know, wrapped up into one. Evan speculates on the impact of LaRue and his network of online pharmacies on the opioid epidemic. I would caveat any, any uh, assumptions there by saying that it's, it's all a little bit speculative because, again, he's operating uh, at least in a gray area, if not in a totally illegal area in terms of, you know, distributing pharmaceuticals. So, it's very difficult to tabulate the numbers. There's no place where you can go to sort of say, oh, here's all the, you know, here's all the pills that he distributed. Um, a lot, they don't even know all the pharmacies that were necessarily connected to him. Uh, there's still doctors and pharmacists being prosecuted, you know, to this day related to Arts Limited. So with all that as a caveat, you know, if you take the estimates of what he was doing at his, at his height, which is maybe, you know, 50 to 100 million pills a year or something like that. 
And these are, they're not all opioids. They're, they're painkillers, but only tramadol was an opioid. He also dealt a lot in Soma, which is a muscle relaxant, and Fioracet, which is for tension, headaches, and migraines. I mean, they're painkillers. They're, they're wrapped up in the, in the opioid epidemic in the same way, in, in the manner that they're, you know, drugs that I think are abused and drugs that have uh, potential for abuse and addiction. Um, they're not as big as the sort of Oxycontins of the world. But if you sort of compare, you know, he's doing 15, 100 million doses a year. I think the Washington Post did analysis of the DA's database that showed that, you know, if you take like Rite Aid, they were doing something like 200 million a year in terms of just distributing opioids through Rite Aid. Like that's how many prescriptions went out the door. It was like 1.6 billion over an eight year period or something like that. Um, so very, very roughly, it's like Paul LaRue is doing maybe like 25% of what Rite Aid is doing, uh, something like that. Um, and there were bigger ones than Rite Aid, Walmart and whatnot, but just as one comparison. So I don't think you would say that in any sense, like Paul LaRue was driving the opioid epidemic. I mean, there were billions and billions of pills uh, of opioid pills that were going out through all of these channels that has all now been uh, very well described. But, um, you know, in terms of an individual person running his own network, being sort of like in even a very rough way, like a quarter of what Rite Aid was distributing is a pretty extraordinary uh, fact, you know, that he could even get close to being sort of the size of a national pharmacy network of, of, uh, of chain drugstores is, you know, shows the kind of like individual impact. I don't think there's another person, individual person who had that kind of impact. Um, it's very difficult to measure where that falls in terms of, you know, the consequences of the epidemic and what it fed into. Again, these are different drugs. Um, so it's sort of hard to suss out, but it certainly was huge relative to who he was. I asked if he thought others would attempt to emulate LaRue's online cartel in the future. I think the model of operating from outside the United States and uh, using the Internet to distribute the United States, that's something that people can replicate. And I'm sure they will look to replicate. In a sense, it's it's sort of like, uh, you know, it's a bit old school. It, It sounds a lot like a regular drug cartel that operates from another part of the world and ships drugs. Um, except that it's all virtual, like all of the actual distribution takes place within the United States. He was never shipping drugs directly to the U.S. or very, very rarely was he shipping drugs directly to the U.S. So I think that the combination of sort of technological mastery and uh, engaging in the kind of dark side of drug trafficking, those are the things that he are probably his his legacy. After many delays, LaRue is scheduled for sentencing in just a couple of weeks. Evan speculates on what will happen. This is one where I've, I've sort of refused to make any prediction because I think, I think a very wide range of outcomes are possible. So essentially, the, the, the federal prosecutors, uh, they file something called a 5K letter, which is essentially saying, this is the cooperation that this defendant has provided, and this is how it should factor into his sentencing. And then it's really up to the judge to determine how important that cooperation was. So LaRue was a cooperator. He obviously gave them murderers who were convicted on the basis of his testimony and his assistance. And so uh, that's that's a big factor. And that traditionally that that would get a lot knocked off your sentence. Now, at the same time, 
it's a little bit strange because Paul LaRue ordered the murders that the people were convicted of. So it's not like he's an independent party uh, to these matters. And so the judge could also consider the fact that he's admitted to seven murders. He's not charged with seven murders. He's charged with selling technology to Iran and some methamphetamine charges and a couple of others. And the guidelines range is 10 years to life. So really anything in there is possible depending on how strongly the prosecutors argue for lenience, how the judge feels about it. I mean, the judge could go below the guidelines as far as I understand it if, the, if she wants to. So she could say, time served. Uh, that seems very unlikely. But I think the range of possibilities here is very wide because no one yet knows, no one's seen the 5K letter, no one knows uh, whether the, the federal prosecutors are going to say, he was incredibly helpful, you should give him a lenient sentence. Or they're going to say, he was helpful, but he also lied to us, and he should get you know, a reasonable sentence for the crimes that he committed. We, we just don't know what they're saying. We talked about the possibility of extradition to the Philippines as well. They certainly would like that to happen, as I understand it from, from law enforcement contacts that I have in the Philippines. They would very much like to get their hands on LaRue. Um, whether he, I mean, I think at one point he seemed to be trying to negotiate his way out of that. His lawyer was supposedly, according to one filing, dealing with the government of the Philippines. It's not clear what that was about exactly. So maybe he's trying to engineer something where uh, they agree not to do that. Um, but I mean, at a certain point, either it, once he serves his time, he's going to get deported. He's going to get deported somewhere because he's not a U.S. citizen. So uh, the most likely place for that would be the Philippines, where he was a resident. I guess he's also a citizen of Zimbabwe and South Africa. So it could be one of those places if they want him. But um, if he goes back to the Philippines, they are going to want to try to prosecute him. The caveat to that is that they would probably need the evidence that the U.S. government has in order to prosecute him. And it's not entirely clear whether the government wants to share that evidence with the Philippines. So uh, there's a lot up in the air there. I, the one thing that's for certain is it seems very clear that he's not want to go to the Philippines uh, and be prosecuted there. And you've got some political tension between the U.S. and the Philippines that's just come out in the last week or so with uh, Duterte's government. Yeah, he just has ended the security cooperation agreement. So. Yeah, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things in play. And then, of course, there's the whole drug war, you know, quote, drug war in the Philippines where, you know, tens of thousands of people have been killed. And it's it's not clear how LaRue would factor into that. Would he be a, a big prize for them? Could he still buy his way out if he got to the Philippines? He has a lot of money stashed away. Uh, so uh, there's a, there's sort of so many factors that it's very difficult to tell how this plays out. Before wrapping up our interview, I asked Kevin to comment on a rumor that ties LaRue to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. For people who don't really follow Bitcoin, the, the creator of Bitcoin and, and, and in some sense, like the modern idea of cryptocurrency, of which Bitcoin is one, um, was a guy named Satoshi Nakamoto. Satoshi Nakamoto is a, is a, is a pseudonym. And it appeared on the original what's called the Bitcoin white paper that he published and also you know, set up forums online and released the first code for Bitcoin uh, in 2008. Uh, so uh, there's been years of speculation about who Satoshi Nakamoto is, both because people want to know who created Bitcoin, also because uh, Satoshi mined 
the original Bitcoins and original blocks of Bitcoins, which now would be worth some billions of dollars. So whoever it is, if they are indeed a person and they are alive in the world, uh, they would own a stash that would make them, you know, among the richest people in the world, depending on the price of Bitcoin at the time, but certainly uh, a multi-billionaire uh, as it stands. And so I had heard people would say, oh, may, I think LaRue might be Satoshi. Like people would say that to me over the course of my reporting. And I always kind of dismissed it, partly because a lot of people have been speculated to be Satoshi and no one's ever really established any convincing evidence. And it comes a couple of times it's blown up in journalist spaces when they have speculated that it is someone and it's turned out to clearly not be that person. So I kind of stayed away from it. And then I ultimately I said, okay, I'm going to look into it. I couldn't really find anything. And then uh, long story short, because there's a lot of detail behind it. But after my book came out, there was a particular detail in a lawsuit related to a guy named Craig Wright, who some people believe is Satoshi, um, that made it created new speculation that it was LaRue. So I looked into it again. I wrote a story about it for Wired magazine. And my conclusion was that LaRue is actually a very, very good candidate to be Satoshi in terms of his skills. You need certain programming skills in, for instance, C++, the language that Bitcoin is, uh, the Bitcoin code is written in, um, his, the timing, his outlook on the world. The timeline's very good. You know, um, he has an interest in encryption. He wrote his own encryption software. He was very conversant in all of the concepts that would have gone into uh, securing a cryptocurrency. Um, so that all weighs on the side of, uh, you know, it could be him. I think if you look at the range of possible candidates that people have named, I think I'd probably bet on him. I think he, he's very, he's a very good candidate. The problem is that the range of candidates that people have named is not the universe of candidates. Like the universe of candidates is is vast and most likely to me. Satoshi is someone that no one's ever heard of. Like they're not actually someone who's uh, been speculated about. They're someone who's very, very by design operating completely uh, in the shadows. So not in the shadows, like illegally, but just they don't want to be known. And so I feel like if you take the universe of possible candidates, I definitely would not say it's Paul LaRue. Like there's convincing evidence. It just like his story lines up. There's not much to knock it down. Um, and it lines up better than most people, other people I've, I've heard about. Now, there are lots of reasons why I, I tend to doubt it a little bit, too. Like, I, in all my reporting, there was very little mention of cryptocurrency. So it wasn't like Paul was going around talking to everyone about cryptocurrency in 2008, 9, 10, 11, which you think that he would be if he was the creator of Bitcoin. At the very least, he'd be saying, we should use this on our websites. And there's no evidence that he was doing that. So there's some, there's some issues that, that, that don't quite make sense. Fascinating. And the whole LaRue story is just unbelievably fascinating. So, Evan Randolph, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We've been talking with Evan Ratliff, who is the author of The Mastermind, Drugs, Empire, Murder, and Betrayal, about the 21st century's most ambitious criminal cartel and the programming genius behind it. The Mastermind, a New York Times 2019 notable book has been called A Triumph. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. For the latest on community events and our podcast series, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover 2 Resources. That's cover and the number two and resources. As always, 
Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 